Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spider. So I've obviously been doing the Tom's Big Spider stuff for quite a while. And one of the things I always endeavor to do is be thorough and be clear in my viewpoints. I also often try to see both sides of situations, especially on some of the quote-unquote controversial topics, because I think it's important to acknowledge that there are often two sides to every story or two sides to every one of these controversies. And I like to look at both sides and kind of dig down and figure out, all right, what is the truth in this? Or what, is, what can we extrapolate from all of this? And I think what happens after you do this long enough and you kind of revisit topics and talk about topics different ways or they come up in different videos, people start to hear things that maybe aren't what you intended them to hear. So several years ago, I actually did a podcast that was kind of taking some of the misconceptions people had for my care, like that people had listen to my videos or listen to a podcast and come away with the wrong message. And I wanted to clear that up and be like, all right, here is what I really think about. And I get why this happens. So for example, I'm, I just put up my old world video. We'll talk about that at the end. And I did the podcast on old worlds. And in one of the parts of both of the podcast and the video, I talk about the ladder system and I had somebody come up. So Tom Moran said, you should absolutely start with the ladder system. I have never said that. I throw the ladder system out there because I know it works for some people. And for some people that gives them the peace of mind to that they're working towards that goal of keeping a potentially more defensive, fast, you know, venomous spider. But I'm not telling people this is what you have to do. I will do beginner lists and I'll have folks come out there and say, Tom Moran says you always have to start with the beginner species. I don't believe that at all. We talked about the folks in Australia that can't start with beginner species. All they can keep is old worlds and they keep them over there. I'm very much open to it being up to the individual to figure out where they're at. Now, sometimes are do individuals jump the gun, you know, they jump into the deep end with an old world and they're not ready for it. Absolutely. But that's just human nature. That's going to happen. And uh, overall, though, I don't ever want my messages to be misunderstood or misconstrued. That's the worst possible thing that can happen because I have been privy to situations where and I'm not on social media very often, but somebody went, Tom Moran said this, and I had to come in and go, Tom Moran has never said that. You misunderstood and clarify because I don't want to ever be cause for some of the misinformation that's out there. I've been doing this a long time. I'm always adjusting. And when I adjust, I always do something about it and talk about it. Like, this is why I'm doing it. Sometimes it's not a situation in that what I was doing originally was wrong. It's just I found a way I like to do it better or that I prefer or maybe that is a better way to do it. So there's different ways to do things. And that's what happens sometimes. And I always like to explain that so folks can have kind of a, you know, transparent view of my thought process over here with all the tarantula care. So Today's episode, what I want to do is take a few instances where I've had folks contact me and just things they've said in either the messages or the emails kind of led me to believe that maybe what I said was misconstrued. So what I want to do is kind of take a moment to go over these and give my opinions on them, which... I will tell you, one of them in particular, I was kind of shocked about, and I was afraid when I started talking about this particular topic a while back, because I had noticed it, and we'll obviously get into that in a moment, but I was afraid people were going to take it the wrong way, and there have been some people that have taken it the wrong way, and that was never what I intended. And with one of the other ones, it's ones that I've experimented with, I'm still experimenting with, but I'm not, the verdict's out as far as I'm concerned. Like, I, this is one that I don't have a strong opinion on, so I don't think anybody should be using my opinion either way on it, because I can see both sides of it. So, to kick it off, I've had a bunch of people asking recently, this actually started uh, several weeks back, where I had a few people in a row 
asked me what happened with my bioactive enclosures. If folks remember several years ago, I got a bunch of bioactive stuff from the bio dude. I set up, I believe at the time, five bioactive enclosures. I was excited to see how they played out. And I have done some video updates on, but I never did like, and I think I might've done a podcast update where I kind of talked a bit about how I was feeling about them, but I don't think I ever broke down how this went. And on top of that, recently I've done a lot more enclosures where I'm not calling them bioactive. I want to make that distinction. We'll talk about that distinction in a minute. I did more naturalistic enclosures where I did include some, you know, I did the moss, the cork bark. I did leaf litter, but more just, for aesthetic appeal. I like the way it looks. And then I put in a pothos plant. So we're not going crazy. I'm not doing different species of plants. We're not doing air plants. We're, there's no drainage level. It's just, I put a plant in the enclosure and I have some of those I've done and I have some thoughts on it. And it's, again, this is just coming from my personal perspective on it, but I had several folks ask me how that was going. And then I have had a couple folks email me and go, I know you don't like bioactive enclosures, but here are some pictures of my spider or, Hey, I have a question about this species. Um, I'm sorry. I know you don't like bioactive enclosures. I've never said that. I, I do not dislike bioactive enclosures. I do not dislike naturalistic enclosures. In fact, I've been trying to do more naturalistic enclosures. In fact, I have a guest lined up. We're going to have Eric Topping on this summer to talk about some of the enclosures he he puts together that are absolutely stunning. I think it is still an area that I need to work with more, experiment with more, get more experience in and learn more about. So I am not coming at this as an expert because I can tell you I've had very mixed result with my results with my bioactive enclosures. But to kick it off, let's just talk about A, I think there's a big difference between a true bioactive enclosure and just somebody doing a more naturalistic setup with a plant or two in it. And that's a, an important distinction because if somebody goes, hey, I want to put a pothos in with my tarantula and it's a big enough enclosure, they're just watering the base of that pothos. There's just about every, every spider could probably do fine in there. There's a difference between that and setting up a true bioactive where it's a little microclimate. A lot of times you have to keep them extra humid. You have to keep the humidity up. You have to keep the plants watered. They have a drainage layer. You will have cleaner inside you'll have fungi, you'll have charcoal, you'll have the decomposables. I, I, I think I made that word up, but the things you put in there that decompose because the way a true bioactive works, it's not just putting a plant in, it's, it should just sustain itself. There's good bacteria. And again, I don't know the different names for them. So people that are doing bioactives can probably chime in on this one, but they're the good bacteria, the bad bacteria, the good fungi. You want things to decompose. You want things that will eat the decomposing things. The, the little bugs will poop them out. That'll go back into the dirt. They air it. There's all this stuff going on. That's like what would go on in nature. And they're very difficult to do. This isn't something you just jump. I found this out the hard way. is isn't something you just jump right into, put a bunch of plants in, put some dirt in, put some bioactive stuff in, drop some feeder insects in and go, oh, I'm done. You have to maintain, you have to monitor it. It's, it's probably closer to folks who keep tropical fish with having to maintain certain levels in the water and you have to add chemicals, you have to test it, you have to, if it's too acidic, if it's too alkaline, all that kind of stuff. And it's complicated. And I think what happens is we have some folks, A, that jump right in the deep end and go full bioactive. And the problem I have, and, and this is where I've spoken out about the bioactive enclosures, I still feel like for most folks, they should learn how to care for the spiders 
first before we start messing with the environment. Now, does that mean like certain species you can't drop right in with a with a plant? No, and that's why I think there's a big difference between a true bioactive setup and one where somebody's just putting a plant, some making it look nice. For example, re- most recently, last couple of years, I am not doing bioactive enclosures. I've had folks go, "Oh, I love you did a bioactive enclosure." I have no bioactive enclosures right now. I have enclosures with a plant, and I try to water the plant and keep the plant alive. And I have a spider, and there's no worrying about humidity levels, moisture levels, any of that stuff. I keep it as simple as can be, which is why I always use golden pothos for everything, because they're just nigh unkillable. There's a big difference between that and if I set something up that had several species of plants, I had nisters and everything else, and that's where I think I struggle sometimes with the bioactive enclosures. Because I think, A, you should always be considering the species of tarantula you're putting in there, and it should be something that's going to benefit from the extra moisture having a bioactive is going to require. Now, I, I know there's probably folks out there thinking, but what if I use succulents? That's a different story. And, and I agree that using, if you have a G. rosea or a, a GBB, a, a C. kind of pubicins, and you want to put some succulents in there, stuff like that, that doesn't require a lot of moisture that you can just water the base of it every once in a while. Yeah, that's obviously not a big deal. But most folks don't. They want these lush environments. They put in the moss. They put everything. Obviously, there are folks out there that do a good job of it and are able to keep the things alive. I think the trick, and one thing that I learned that I probably screwed up on when I first did these is I started small. I started a lot of these original bioactive enclosures in 8x8x12 exoterras. I think now that to do a good, and granted I've tried it in larger ones and screwed that up too, but I think that's just, I'm bad with plants. I think going bigger would help. So if somebody wants to set up a really nice enclosure for a Kilobrachy species or some of the moisture-dependent species, some of the tropical species, I don't see anything wrong with that. I just really do believe that you should have at least your basic cosmogry down first and know what the spiders need. Because what I will get is, for example, I got one the other day and it didn't end, the discussion didn't end particularly well because the person completely shot me down, which is fine. But they asked me a question about why their avicularia wasn't doing well. And they said, I have it in a bioactive enclosure. I have, they had three different types of plants in it. It was a full bioactive. And they had a mister that went on certain types of times of the day to keep everything misted. And they couldn't figure out why the spider wasn't doing well. And I looked at it. It was just like the polar opposite of what most folks nowadays would tell you in terms of avicularia care. There wasn't, it was an exoterra. It, there wasn't a lot of cross ventilation at all. It was filled with plants. It was definitely moist. You could see the substrate was moist. There was a big pool with water that would circulate in it. And there was a mister that would go on the top of it. And it was like, well, this is probably, you're going to have a dead spider soon. They're like, oh, no, no, I did my research. This is how they live in the wild. They had no cross ventilation. They didn't take into account that when they live in the wild, yes, it could be humid, but they have breezes going through the trees, keeping the air circulating. There was no air circulation the picture of the spider itself there were droplets of water on it for where the mister had come down and hit it so it turned into i was like hey i would honestly pull that spider out of there and get it into something much more simple to start off no i don't know i did my reason and that was it they never got back to me but that was one of those situations where i'm like no that's where somebody didn't do their research they just hopped up well they did research but unfortunately they probably researched where they came from went oh this will be perfect and didn't do the research that had you i don't know talking to keepers who have kept them for years that have said that's a great way to kill your spiders. 
So that's an example of one of the cases where I think, yeah, bioactive, not the right spot for it and why they can be a little bit dangerous. Another one, and this one blew my mind. Somebody contacted me about their G. Porteri was climbing up the walls. And you can probably tell, or G. Rosea, you can probably tell where this is going to be going. I was like, I did my, hey, can you do me a favor? Send me some pictures of the setup. I get the photos in. It's It looks like around a 10-gallon glass aquarium or so. Decent amount of substrate in. I give them that. It wasn't like there was no risk of fall damage. Filled with plants. It, you could tell it was a very moist environment. The substrate, you could tell, was moist. There was lots of moss. There was lots of greenery. There was, it just was not an appropriate setup for that spider. And you could see the spider all scrunched up in a stress pose up in the corner trying to get the heck away from all the moisture in there. So luckily, this individual did listen to me. I said I'd get that spider out of there immediately, explained how this is one of the true arid species. They will appreciate a water dish. Don't get me wrong. I've seen mine drink out of the dishes, but they like their substrate dry. You know, if you wanted to use succulents. So they got the spider out, put them into a better enclosure with dry substrate, and the spider miraculously started sitting on the ground. It ate, which was great. And they ended up taking the other enclosure they had set up and they put some tropical species. And I forget what it was. It was kind of like a compromise. Like, yeah, I still think it's too far to put this one in. But those are some instances where folks unfortunately see the bioactive thing, they want it, and they don't do the necessary research to recognize that that wouldn't be an appropriate setup for the species that they want to put in it. So that's where I'm a little iffy with bioactives. When done correctly and done with the right species, I think they're amazing. Someone just contacted me recently and showed me the bioactive they had set up for some of the Pisolotheria species. It was gorgeous. And the spider was out there loud and proud underneath it. We had a little light, LED light above it. And it was sitting right out there on the plant with the plants around the lush green. It looked fantastic. And the spider obviously was comfortable in it. So I do think there are situations where they work great. You just need to be careful which species you're doing with them. I think going full bioactive, I can't really get into. My big worry is always when you're doing a full bioactive those are tough to keep going like we talked about earlier there's a lot of making sure the right conditions are there that things are doing what they're supposed to so i my big concern is always that the welfare of the spider will come second as you're trying to keep all that lush foliage alive that's the only thing i sometimes get concerned with because i've had folks tell me they're i don't know what's going on this is dying this is dying this is dying they're not really taking into account that there's a spider in there that should be the main focus of this thing so that's my only issue. So I don't have an issue with bioactive enclosures, so to speak. It's just I do think we need to pick our spots with them. Now, as far as my bioactive enclosures, as I alluded to, I did the five from the bio dude several years ago. I did, I believe, HMAC, uh, GBB, Ophilopinus, uh, L. Sosme now, no longer uh, P. Sosme, and then two P. Reduncus I put into the bioactive enclosures, I did the bioactive substrate, I did the additive stuff they send you that's supposed to create the correct bacteria for it, I did all kinds of the plants, different plants and different ones, the, most of them lasted a year, um, I believe the reduncus lasted about, one of the reduncus lasted about two years, one of the reduncus decided one day it didn't like the plants and ripped them all down and killed them. The Ophilopinus, it was working for a little while, and then I noticed little by little the plants started dying off. I was trying to make sure I didn't overwater, didn't underwater. So this could be down to me just being terrible at keeping plants alive. The GBB, that was a train wreck. We put in 
some uh, there were two different plants in there. One of them was a snake plant, so uh, type of plant that doesn't require a lot of moisture. I thought that would be a good one. The other one I can't remember it was rabbit fern, maybe something like that. And another plant that supposedly didn't need a lot of water, which would be great because obviously you don't want to keep a GBB moist. But unfortunately, that GBB webbed the snot out of those plants and little by little, they started dying off. So that one around the year and a half mark, I believe the spider plant, the spider plant went rather quickly, believe it or not. And then the fern lasted a little while longer, but it was one of these deals where it was so webbed up, I thought it was alive. And then I ended up cutting away some of the webbing and finding out it wasn't alive anymore. So that one went rather quickly. So out of the five I started, I believe it was like four years ago. None have any plants left in them. And the one thing I did find with those is, again, for the arboreal species, the HMAC and the 2P reduncus, I probably should have put them in something bigger. It was very cramped. And there was one point where the plants were growing really well and kind of basically overtaking the whole enclosure. And then it got to be too much. I was trimmed a couple of them out. I'm like, oh, this is going great. And then they ended up dying. Uh, again, Reduncus tore one of them down. HMAC, I didn't want to keep it overly moist for the HMAC. So I was trying to spot water it. I don't know if I overdid it, underdid it. Whatever the case, they didn't last very long. So after that, I decided I'm not going to go the full bioactive route anymore. What I would do is stick with the one plant that seemed to work really well, which is my current go-to where plants are concerned, the golden pothos. And I set up, I've set up several enclosures with these. So I believe I've done 12 with golden pothos in them. I plan on doing more. I have a golden pothos sitting right next to me that I'm going to break up into a different, a couple different parts and start planting. But I, with those I had out of the 12, the ones that are still good, my Orphanacus species Panay, that plant is thriving. That's because the Panay rarely comes up to the surface. I catch up every once in a while. So the plants have grown out and taken up a good part of the, part of the enclosure. And I love it. It looks beautiful. The other one that's right next to it, M. Robustum, and they both consequently get more sun than some of the other ones. So that's probably, although I do kind of cycle them around and move the cages so they get more all of them get some but those two the the spiders really haven't messed with them because both of them the spiders stay in their burrows most of the time so the panay robustum doing great a geniculata i set that one up uh last middle last year maybe and it was doing great and then the other day i came in she had ripped six of the seven leaves off of the plant so i'm going to give it credit for still being alive because there's one little leaf and stem coming out of the ground, but it's almost dead. My P. arboricola, I put a pothos plant in with that one. It's in one of the 8 by 8 by 12 exoterras, and it's still alive, but it hasn't grown. Now, if you ever have raised golden pothos, the stuff grows like a weed. And the fact that it hasn't grown, I mean, the fact that it hasn't died is nice, but the fact that it hasn't grown shows it's probably not particularly thriving there. I had a Y. diversipes. And it ended up being a mature male. It was given to me by a buddy of mine. And that one, until the day it died, was still growing. But again, much like the P. aboricola, it wasn't growing. It was just surviving. So not a. it, it looked it was like one little leaf coming out of there. It wasn't what I really hoped for, which was going to be a lot of uh, foliage. But part of that was because I didn't want to overdo it with the moisture in it. So probably not the best idea to do it with that species. Uh, P. regalis has a plant in with it. And that one has been in there since February of 2020, so over three and a half years. And like the other plants I mentioned before, not exactly growing, but it hasn't died. So I would consider that one to be a success. As for the plant, I actually had to pause for a minute to find out what kind of plant it was. It was a Dracaena species. Somebody thought it was a Florida beauty. So I may have to try that again because that obviously worked very, very well. The spider spends most of its time in the burrow, doesn't really bother the plant all that much. And the plant just kind of sits there and 
doesn't really grow, but doesn't really die. So that's that's a win as far as I'm concerned. But that's about it for the ones that I've put plants in. Now, I do want to do more plants, so I will experiment with other things as well going on. I'm not going to stop with the plants, but this is where I'm at, about 50%, because the ones that it didn't work in, I did an El Para Hibana rehousing three or four years ago, and I when I put the plant in, it was a golden pothos. I was kind of in the back of my mind thinking there's no way this is going to last. Well, it lasted quite some time, but then recently she decided she didn't like it anymore, ripped it down. I'm looking at it now, and there are two little stems with leaves, and they're laying down, and they're not growing, and they look like they'll be dead soon. So we're going to call that one dead. Zenestis species blue. I put a video up where I put a golden pothos in it. I used, I think I used one of the tarantula crib cube enclosures for it. I was super excited about it, and I had a couple of people comment, and I think a buddy of mine told me, yeah, by the way, I put plants in with my Zenesta species, and they ripped them all up. And I'm like, oh, hopefully it lasts. It didn't. Within a week, it had ripped the whole thing down, so it's completely dead. My tea blondie, I rehoused that one a couple of years ago, put in a pothos. It was doing great. After her recent molt, she decided, hey, I don't want this thing here anymore. I came up this week. This literally happened three days ago, and she had ripped off all the leaves except for one and dropped them in the water dish. So technically speaking, it's alive because there's one little stem with a leaf up there, but how long is that really going to last? My P. rufalata, I put in a golden pothos. It was great for a little while, gave some nice cover. I'd find her hiding behind it, and then she pulled a bunch of leaves off it, trampled it a bit, and then the rest of it just died off. So that one was pretty much a failure because I don't think it lasted like six months. It definitely wasn't a year. And then my P. metallicas, when I rehoused those, I put a couple plants in there. Those died off rather quickly as well. So about 50-50 now with the plants. I can't say that it's all like, this is one of those deals I got to look at and go, this could be me. This could be just my inability to keep these plants alive. But I will say in the situations where the spider comes and rips them out, what can you say? The spider ripped them out. There's nothing I could have done. What, fight the spider off with a paintbrush all day long? It Obviously, there's nothing I could have done to prevent that. So I think in the cases where it works, it's fantastic. The cases where it doesn't, you just cut your losses and recognize, okay, I guess I can't have a plant in there. Some of them I have to like, for example... With my P. rufalata, I have to, the, the enclosure, I used one of the 12 by 12 by 16 exoterras, and I needed that plant in there to give it cover. Now all it's got is a cork bark round, no cover. So I have to put, a, I'm probably going to put a fake plant in there, which stinks because the whole point was to have a nice, beautiful plant for this nice, giant, beautiful spider. But as far as bioactives are concerned, I think they can be great. I think they're awesome. I think they do require extra patience. I think they do require that the keeper know a little bit about plants as well as spiders, which is important. I think that's where I kind of fell down to begin with. My big question, this is something we'll probably tap Eric for when we get into it, is the ones that it works well with are some of my arboreal species, but when they poop all over everything, what do you do with that? That's been the only problem it has. I set up a couple of these enclosures that still have the plants in it. Like the one, for example, that I have my peeper gallus in. Sure, she doesn't like molest the plant in any type of way, but she poops all over it. So I guess what I have to do is go in there and wash down the plant. I always wondered about that. And I see these ones where they set up these beautiful enclosures with these backgrounds and everything. And I always wonder what happens when the spider inevitably tears into it or poops on it. But I've seen some absolutely gorgeous stuff. I do want to continue moving ahead, trying to do, we'll call them more naturalistic enclosures. I'm not going to call them bioactive enclosure enclosures because that's not what I'm doing. More naturalistic enclosures where I'm able to hopefully get some plants to survive, create some environments for the spiders that it benefits the spider. Because I think at the end of the day, 
If you're doing a bioactive enclosure, it should benefit the spider that you're putting in there. It shouldn't be, here's my bioactive enclosure. Can't wait to keep this alive. Now I'm going to drop a spider in. It should be, how is this going to benefit the spider? Does it need more moisture? Does it appreciate having foliage to hide behind? I think with some species, one of the best arguments I heard, which got me interested in it, was the fact that many spiders don't want to be caught out in the open. So if you give them an enclosure that has some foliage, they use that, they creep out, they go behind it. And I have seen that with my bioactive enclosures, some of those spiders I would see out more often because they had some cover. But something I'd still work in progress for me. It's something I'm still working on, but I want to make it very, very clear that I'm not shooting down bioactive enclosures. I'm not shooting down naturalistic enclosures. I just think the per whoever's doing them should know their basic spider care and should make sure that they're appropriate for that particular species. Now that we've clarified my view on the bioactive enclosure, I hope I've clarified them. And hopefully some folks will chime in with stuff that they've done with it, some tips and tricks. That's what I've, I've gotten a lot of tips and tricks from folks who have a lot more experience in these types of things than I do. But now that we've covered that one, I want to get on to the other one. I've had a couple people contact me lately worried because their spiders have buried themselves and they're worried they're not going to come back up. They're going to starve to death. Now, this comes from one of the things I've noticed over several years of keeping, and it hasn't happened often, especially when you consider the number of fossorial species I've kept, the number of just overall tarantula species I've kept. But I have noticed this happening a couple times, usually with smaller specimens, where you take a spider, it's a, usually it's a fossorial species, it burrows. It's eating fine. It fills up its burrow. You're waiting for it to molt, waiting for it to molt, waiting for it to molt. Still hasn't surfaced, still hasn't surfaced. And we've told people for many, 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 many years that after your spider buries itself, goes into pre-molt, when it's ready to eat, it will open up the burrow. Well, in these instances, the spiders never opened up the burrow. So I've had this, I first experienced it and noticed it with the P. muticus, where I was keeping P. muticus slings. I get these little three-quarter inch, half-inch slings. I'd heard that you had to keep them in as deep substrate as possible because in the wild, they'll create nine-foot burrows. You need to have super deep burrows. So I would put them in like six inches, seven inches of substrate in a 32-ounce deli cup. And twice I had a situation where they were eating okay. They did their burrowing. They burrowed all the way down to the bottom, cleared a ring around the whole bottom, filled up their, their burrow entrance, and they sat down there. And my theory was, well, if they're hungry, they're going to come up. So I'd drop parietums up there. They wouldn't get, I'd find the parietums the next day still alive, wouldn't open the burrows. In both cases, they, in one case, the thing molted. And I was like, okay, it'll come up when it's ready. Waited, 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 nothing. Finally, I shine the flashlight in one day. I see mold. And I'm like, this isn't good. I dig it up. It's dead. The other one, same thing. Then I talked about how I had two juveniles that I put in about nine to 10 inches of dirt. Both of them dug all the way down to the bottom. Both of them, once again, filled up their burrow entrances and did not come out for months. And I'm like, this, I know this is a slow growing species, but this is ridiculous. I was putting praetums up. So finally, what I did was I opened up, carefully opened up one of the burrows and I took a pre killed cricket, or I, no, it was a roach. I crushed its head, dropped the roach in. That thing went at that roach so fast. I'm like, oh dear. So I dropped in more roaches. It ate like a pig. And I kept the burrow open for a while and I kept dropping praetums up top. It was coming up eating. Same thing with the other one. I took them both out of those deep enclosures, put them in more shallow enclosures with only about four or five inches of substrate. So they had enough room to burrow, but they couldn't get down too deep. They both ate like pigs. They grew much more quickly and they both matured, unfortunately, into males within about two years or so. So that got me thinking, what would have happened if I didn't open those burrows up and try this? Now, what unfortunately, 
unfortunately, when I started talking about this, and I this was a worry. I remember talking with Billy one night going, I'm going to cover this topic, and I'm afraid what's going to happen is now we've been telling people for years, under most circumstances, do not dig up your spiders. Under any, Not under any circumstance do you ever open up a burrow and toss in a live prey item. And I'm like, I'm afraid I'm going to say this and it's going to cause people to freak out and see this happening where maybe it's just the natural process of it being in pre-mold and burying itself and we're going to have all these people digging up their spiders. And for the most part, I think people have been really good about, hey, should I be panicking yet when they contact me? But unfortunately, I have had some folks either leave messages or email where they said, I heard what you said about digging them up when they're not eating. And then they'll talk about a species that, quite frankly, like an adult that has been burrowed for a month and they dig it up because they're like, oh yeah, it's been down there way too long. Well, that's not a long time for pre-molt for that species. So I want to clarify. And by doing that, I'm going to talk about the species that I've witnessed this with, the search, the circumstances around it, and when I thought it was time to dig them up. Because under most circumstances, I don't think you need to dig them up. I just think it's one of those spots you need to know your spider. You need to recognize when it's molting, when it's in pre-molt, the size of it. If you have a sling that goes into pre-molt, buries itself and doesn't appear after like two or three months, you might have to worry a little bit. But if it's a larger specimen, that's a normal amount of time. So again, we already talked about the P. muticus. Another one I had do it was a G. polker, Gramostola polcris sling. Those are those little lovely black labs of the tarantula world that everybody loves. I had a little sling that I put in about, I think the sling at the time was about probably an inch, inch and a quarter. And I put it in this cylindrical enclosure. It was about the size of a 16 ounce deli cup. And it was pretty much filled with substrate. And this particular one burrowed down the body. It was eating fine. It burrowed, closed up its burrow. I'm like, no problem. It's, it's going to be molting. So the spider luckily was at a spot where I could see it. It molted. I could see the molt. I could see the spider. Like, all right, should be a week or two. It should be ready to eat. Week goes by. Two weeks goes by. Three weeks goes by. Finally, it's about a month and a half after it molted. And I'm shining. I'm having a hard time seeing it. But this particular day, I shine a flashlight and I can see the spider. It is thin as can be. It hasn't opened its burrow yet. I'm putting prey items up top. It's not going for them. So what I did was I carefully, and my trick is you want to not dig them up completely. You want to try to find the opening to the burrow. You want to carefully, what I do is moisten it down first. That allows, it makes it a lot easier to pack the substrate. If it's dry and crumbly, it's just going to fall into the hole and fill it in. If you moisten it down first, so it takes a minute, pour some water down that area, get it moist, and then I use the back of a paintbrush or the tongs, and I carefully drag the substrate up and pack it around the hole until I open it up. And then what I did in this case is I pre-killed a roach and I dropped it in there before that roach barely hit the ground and that spider was all over it. So this was a hungry, hungry, hungry spider that was not coming up, was not surfacing to eat. So I had I not intervened in that situation, I probably would have ended up with a spider that would have starved to death. I know we like to say they're smart enough to come up, but I think the thought process is that for some of these species in the wild, they may find prey items under the ground. So when they burrow, they don't have to come up. Sometimes they're going to find grubs. They're going to find worms. They're going to find species of crickets, whatever it may be under the ground so they don't even have to service. And that's the thought process behind why this sometimes happens. So that was one of them it happened with. Another one that happened with, a Fonapelma burica. This one happened rather recently. I had a Fonapelma burica that was keeping, originally, she was a little larger, so I had a larger dram vial. I moved her into a deli cup, and then I moved her into one of the 8x8x7-inch barbarous growth enclosures. I'm looking at her over here now. And she went in, she dug a little burrow, uh, she ate once, and then she filled in her burrow. And I'm like, okay, she's fine. And what I would do is I always, with, uh, you know, a Fauna Pelma, a lot of folks will say keep them dry. I always keep a corner moist because I found that they do not, I think they burrow and they find some moisture in the wild. And I've noticed they will gravitate toward that moist corner. So I kept the corner moist. 
I waited, waited, waited. I'm like, all right, she must be in pre-malt. I, I couldn't even see her at one point. Well, finally, she did enough burrowing that she opened up the dirt next to the glass. And I shined a flashlight in. She was skinny as can be. It did not look good at all. So once again, went through, moistened down, found where the opening was, moistened it down, opened it up, dropped in a cricket, and smashed his head, let it run around like an idiot. It grabbed the cricket immediately. I fed her three more crickets. She ate, and then she filled it up again, and she still wasn't at that, so I had to open up again. So there's another example of one that had I not intervened, I don't care what anybody says, I would have had a dead spider in that thing. So now I have to check. Right now, I checked on her today before this podcast, funny enough, because I want to see how she was doing. Still not a porker, but at least she has her burrow open so I can drop something in the surface. She'll come and get it. But that's another one that did it. Another spider did it. Cotsletliana Puebla. I have species Puebla. I have one of those. I had it originally in a sling container. When I went to rehouse it, I put it into one of those Sterilite ones I use are about half four and a half by five by about five and a half deep. I, I use a lot of them for my slings. If you watch any of my videos, that you, you'll see them in there. But I put in about eh, four inches of substrate. And when I put the spider in, she was still rather small, probably say an inch and a half or so. Dug down to the bottom, filled up her burrow and did not come back up for quite a bit. So I'm like, all right, she'd been eating like a pig. She's probably in pre-mall. Shine the flashlight in. I can see the molt. The spider's in there. A month goes by. She is not surfaced. She is not coming up to eat at all any prey items. So I shine the flashlight in. I see her super, super skinny once again. So I pour a little water in the top, open it up, put a prey item up there. I pre-killed something, left it there, waited a little bit. She came up, ate it. She's been fine since then. But again, another instance where it wasn't coming up. And then finally, the other one that has done this, and this one did it quite a bit. I kept it. We were having a little battle going on. It was kind of funny. My S. Hoffmani. When I picked this one up, I got it from Fear Not. She was about a two and a half inch sexed female. And so I put her in something. Again, I wanted her. I knew they burrowed. So I wanted to give her room to burrow. So I gave her one of those M Design shoe boxes I use. They're about seven and a half by about 13 inches by about seven and a half tall around there. They have the hinge tops. I love them. They look like they're made out of some type of acrylic or something. But I put in about probably about six inches of substrate or so. And at first she was fine. She dug a burrow. She had two entrances or an exit and an entrance, whatever you want to call it. Did a little webbing on the surface. I would drop crickets in. She'd come up. She'd grab them. No problem. No problem whatsoever. And then she went into pre-molt. She closed up the burrow and she sat in there for like two and a half months Again, shine the flashlight in, could see the molt. She was in there, wasn't eating. So once again, I opened up the burrow, she ate. She closed the burrow up again. I opened up the burrow again, she ate. She closed up the burrow again, wasn't eating. We did this for quite a while. Now, luckily, she's molted again since then. And she's been on the top quite a bit, which is great because it's become one of my favorite spiders. She's absolutely adorable. But she stopped doing that. But part of that is I think she's put on a little bit of size. Uh, this seems to happen more with slings and juvenile. So there was another one that did that. So that's right there. Five or six spiders that did this out of the hundreds that I've kept, but it's still something I think that we need to have in the back of our minds because for years we warned folks, don't dig them up. I've, I shared the story how I bought originally back in the day. It was three Hopalopus species, Columbia large slings, teeny tiny slings. I had them in dram vials. I was convinced one of them was dead. I hadn't seen it forever. I dug it up and I found one really upset little sling in there. Like, what are you doing, man? I was totally fine. So that was like my 
the, the one incident I had where it reminded me, all right, you got to show patience. And considering our last podcast was about showing patience in the hobby, patience being a virtual, you need to wait things out sometimes. I thought I should bring up a situation where sometimes you have to put patience aside and act. So that those are the ones it's happened with. Those are the circumstances. And I hope you realize the common threads here, for the most part, are the fact that A, they're buried for quite some time. B, in most instances, they have molted and they're not resurfacing. And with smaller specimens, they should resurface after a few weeks, at least. Some of them resurface after a week. They'll throw their, the best ones are the ones that open up their burrow, throw their molts out. It's like, hey, I'm ready. But it should be, it shouldn't be a month. It shouldn't be two months. And then in all situations, I was able to shine the light in and see the spider and see that it was thin. And that's an important thing too, to recognize, all right, this isn't a spider that's just chilling out for a bit because it's eaten enough. It's thin. It's not in good shape. It needs to eat. Now, what to do if it's been a while and you can't see your spider like I can or I could in these situations? And I think that's an awesome question. It doesn't hurt to carefully open up the burrow. You know, the same way I told you, moisten down the area, open up, and leave a pre-killed. This is what I the advice I always give folks. Leave a pre-killed item right at the mouth of that burrow. Because there are essentially two possible outcomes for this scenario. One, the spider comes out, ignores the prey item, fills its burrow back in. They will recognize that the burrow's been open. If they're in pre-molt, they don't want it open, they'll close it back up. No questions asked. Leave me alone, idiot. Stop opening up my burrow. Or two, you come back and the prey item is gone, which means the spider was hungry. A lot of times what will happen in these situations, once you open it once, and in most of these situations, I open the burrow once and it never closed it again. It was like, that's what it took for it to be like, all right, I got to get up and eat now. But most of the situations, it'll keep the burrow open and then you keep putting prey items like you normally would. Every once in a while, it'll eat and close the burrow back up. I usually, when I'm not sure, when I can't see the spider, I will usually open the burrow up again and leave another prey item there. And I will say, for example, with two of mine, I think I might have had to do, I, I might have misspoke earlier with the Kotstetlana Puebla. I believe I might have had to do it a couple times. I could be wrong. I only had to do it once. But the Hoffmani, I know we had to do it several times She until she finally went into pre-molt again. She kept closing it up. And with the Afana Pelma Barica, the same thing. I had to keep opening up because she kept, she'd eat, she was still thin, she'd close it up and sit in the opposite end of the enclosure. So I had to do it several times. So that's something to keep in mind. The good news is if you're opening up the burrow, as long as you're not dropping live prey items in it, you're not going to hurt the spider. You might aggravate the spider because it'll find eventually the burrow's open, it'll close it back up again, but that's it doesn't take them all that long. It's fine. If you open the burrow, put pre-killed out there, and they eat, you know you have a problem. If they don't eat, you know you can probably relax, take a deep breath, and just wait it out. But I am not encouraged. I want to make this very, very clear. If you notice in all these situations here we're talking about, there was a lot of information that led me to believe that these spiders needed to be fed weren't coming up the surface. This is not something that happens a lot. So unfortunately, what I've been getting is emails from folks that are like, hey, my one of them was a 5-inch Theraphosostermy. My five inch Theraphosostermy just buried herself. She's been buried for three weeks. I'm freaking out because uh, she hasn't molted and come back up to eat yet. That's not long enough. That's I had a male Theraphosostermy before his uh, ultimate molt, his final molt. He stayed down there for almost a year. So you got to keep in mind, again, size of the spider. If you're, a spider is a larger spider and there's not a lot of substrate, they can hear, they can feel and sense the pitter-pat of those animals moving around the surface. This generally only is an issue. I haven't, and if somebody's had it happen with an adult, 
please chime in. I have not heard of it happening with any adult species or specimens. It's always juveniles or slings. They get lost and it's too deep. I think one thing we can do to prevent this is make sure that when we're setting up enclosures for our slings to not go overboard. I know in our minds, it's we always hear that more substrate is better. And I believe that most circumstances. And I'm not saying to be a substrate Scrooge, but if you have a half-inch spider and it's a burrowing species and you put it in something that has three inches of substrate, that's a lot of room to get lost in. How about we put in an inch and a half or so? It, uh, just keep it a little low. And I've found that now that I've been more cognizant of this, when I set up my slings, I've avoided this. More, I think there's been situations where I've actually gone to put slings in something, realize how small the sling was. Like, nope, I'm taking a little bit of the substrate out of there just to be sure because you don't want that situation where it's stressful when you have a sling or you have a spider and you're not sure that it's eating and you're freaking out. You're not sure whether to dig it up. I think if we are a little more careful with just not giving them too much substrate so they get lost in it, we can prevent this. And I've been trying to do it, but like I said, I had some species here that did it and I didn't think it was all that much substrate, especially... S. Hoffmani. That one threw me off a bit because I thought the, I had put an appropriate amount of dirt in there. But she she loves digging. She's still awesome species because it's constantly digging. But yeah, she, she and I were going back and forth for a while like, no, you need to eat. No, I need to close up my burrow. So that would be the, the situation with that. I'm not telling folks to just willy-nilly dig everything up. We still need to show patience. We still need to wait it out and recognize that the pre-molt periods for different species are different, for different sizes of spiders, it's different, and recognize that fact. But if you're noticing it's been way too long, if you're noticing that the spider molted and you know for a fact it molted and it's been weeks and it hasn't come up, if you have a smaller sling and you haven't seen it at all, these are the tips to do it. But do not ever drop live prey down there. I've heard in my tenure doing this stuff, I've been privy to a few situations where folks went... I opened up the burrow, I dropped in a cricket, the spider never came back, I opened up, the spider's gone, cricket's still there. That's a horrible situation, nobody ever wants to experience that. So do not, never telling anybody to drop live prey down there, stun it, kill it, put it up top, see if they come up and get it. So those were the two topics I really wanted to cover today, and I'm glad I could just reiterate my stance on them. I would love folks to chime in with their tips on keeping the, you know, if you've kept real bioactive, you're just putting plants in, what are you doing? What are you putting in there as far as live plants? What works for you? I'd love some tips because moving ahead this summer, I will probably be doing, a, um, there's no probably, I'm going to be doing a bunch of rehousings and I am on the lookout for something other than golden pothos to be a good plant to use in there. So I'd love to hear from folks. Number two, have you experienced a spider? that has buried itself and not come back up to eat? And if so, what was the species? What size was it? What were the circumstances behind it? I think it would be nice to start putting together you know, some information on this because I know I'm not the only one. I've spoken to many other people who have experienced this. I will tell you, out of all the species I mentioned, the G. pulchra was the one that threw me off. I would never expect that from a G. pulchra. So if it can happen to G. pulchra, it can happen to other things. What have you seen with that? What were the circumstances? How much substrate did you have? What was the deal? So I would love for folks to chime in with that. That will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on YouTube. I did finally, after three and a half years, get the video up on Old World Species. I'm so glad I did. Uh, again, you can thank Billy for that because she kind of kept every once in a while, when are you going to finish that video? When are you going to finish that video? And not hounding. I don't want to, like, she was right. Like, I had such good ideas. I thought I had good ideas for it. I did a little script for it. 
put it together or started putting it together and just ran out of steam. So I'm so glad to have it out. So glad that it's been very well received. We did do the premiere thing, which was a lot of fun. We went over on to uh, basically, I don't know if you guys are on YouTube. The folks that aren't on YouTube, you can choose to have a video released a certain amount of time and you can choose to have it be a premiere, which means there's actually an open chat as the video plays. So it was cool to chat with folks while the video was playing. And it was also cool where people that were trying to come up, were more trying, they were throwing out tips about or throwing out which species they thought would make a good starter old world species. And I, as you're going through it, I'm checking off. Yep, covered it. Yep, covered it. So that was good because it kind of showed me that I did cover the majority of the stuff I wanted to cover. So that was a lot of fun. So if you want to check out, I know podcast listeners have heard the whole podcast on it. If you want to check out the video, that is live. And again, I'm hoping that serves as a resource for some folks that either the folks that are new to the hobby I'm hoping they'll see that and maybe go, you know what? I will be ready to keep some someday. I just got to keep working. Or for folks that are on the fence, like I had a couple people like, you know what? I've been kind of toying with it and I watch this video and you're right. And I'm going to give this a shot. Hopefully that'll be enough to push some people to keeping them. Because I think one person did chime in and I think there's some truth to this. I think this is more of an issue in the United States where we're much more crazy about gatekeeping with the old worlds. Where in other countries, I don't notice as much. In other countries, they just pick stuff up, they buy it, they don't care. So I do think it's more of an issue over here where we're freaked out about it. With other countries, I mean, we always talk about Australia, and I talked about it earlier. They can only keep old worlds and they do fine. So not to say we shouldn't be aware of the risk, not to say we shouldn't be aware of the venom, not to say somebody might hear about the venom and go, you know what, I don't even want to chance that. I totally understand. But this is more just to put out a realistic outlook from somebody who has kept them from years and talked to a lot of people that have kept them and talked to a lot of these people that jump right in with them and they don't have problems with them. So that's out if you want to check it out. Next week, we're going to be doing my favorite tarantula species. I did make a couple changes from when I did the podcast. It's always ever evolving. Unfortunately, my C. Cyaneus uh, molted out and it's a mature male. So I love him, but I thought I had a female and I couldn't wait to raise this female up and see it grow. And now I have the male. So that one might have slipped from the list a little bit. I still love him, but it's just I wanted to do something a little different from the podcast for the folks that go over from the podcast to hear it. And I did notice there were some spiders after I did the podcast that didn't make it. So I kind of switched things up a little bit, but that'll be out next Friday. That will do it for me. As always, I hope you all have a fantastic week. Stay safe and we'll catch you all next time.